evil. And we're not very interested in them joining us around the throne in heaven, are we? Nor do we think those type of people are the ones that God should feel too, too concerned about. I imagine a bit the grace of God probably starts to grate a bit, hey? The difference, you see, between uh, you and myself being comfortable with sharing heaven with Angelina Jolie and not ISIS, Steve Irwin and not the Barley Bombers, is the extent to which we are on board with and we want to accept what God is like. You see, Uni Fellowship, how much the character of God revealed in Jonah matches up with your attitude will give you the answer to whether you should care about such people and actually why God does. That sets the precedent and boundary lines for what we care about and how much. Today, we're going to see that. So Jonah's wrong response. Chapter 4, verses 1. One to four. Jonah's wrong response. Chapter four. It's the homecoming scene, right? Jonah's happy ending. The lessons learned, the changed man, roll credits, inspiring music. It's not. Jonah is not celebrating the good outcome of the Assyrian salvation, is he? He's got a serious issue. God's prophet hates what God has done because he sees God's behavior as wrong. Here we see that God has turned away from his anger, but look at me with what Jonah has turned to. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Let's look at his anger, his reason, and his resolve to understand Jonah's wrong response. Jonah ain't happy. Look at his anger. The word displeased there is actually too soft uh, an idea. It's actually closer to evil. Jonah is of the opinion that God's response of relenting at the city's repentance is an awful act, even a wicked one. Think about that. What began this tale in chapter 1, verse 2? Well, God saying, go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah ends the story by applying the same kind of description to God's behavior that God gave to the Ninevites' behavior. Now, the Ninevites were not simply the surly, the ungrateful, the resentful, and the loveless. I wonder if you kind of know people like that at all. The Ninevites are known today even as one of the cruelest civilizations ever to exist. They were violent, right? They were brutal and merciless and idolaters. 
You read in history what they did to those that crossed them or those they decided to cross, and it's proper R-rated stuff. It's horrifying. These were the bad guys. This was the hometown and headquarters of those types of people I listed earlier. And they lived just next door to Israel. To leave such a people unpunished? Well, it's not right. It won't do, will it? A display of his justice in judgment? Well, it's totally what needs to be exerted, yeah? I wonder if you agree. Just a little. You can see how Jonah can be justified here because of those type of people that we're dealing with. That's what's raising his blood pressure as he thinks of the Lord. However, God is not to be reduced only to his just and righteous character, nor have that made bigger than it is. He's more than this. The surprise if not the shock, is that Joan knows this. He knows it well. And we finally see that the veil drawn back from his heart. And so Jonah goes on and he gives his reason for his anger. So let's have a look at that. Now since Jonah boarded that boat, you and I haven't really understood why he was so quick to bolt in the other direction, have we? Remember we saw the that in chapter 1 with Mikey, but not the why. Now we learn his motivations, that they center around the quote that he actually picks up in verse 2 to describe who he knows God to be. It's from a famous moment in Israel's history and life with God when he proclaims his name to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for their sin of the father to the fourth, to the third and fourth generations. God revealing his name to Israel is to tell them who he really is and what he's really like. His character and being is identified and explained. From this passage, Jonah only talks about his grace, his compassion, his love, and his mercy. Did you notice that? His focus there is not judgment and vengeance. And I don't know any instant where this quote actually isn't explicitly um, uh, connected to God's character in relation to only Israel and his special covenant with them. Yet in Jonah, incredibly, who God has revealed himself to be is directly applied to those outside of Israel, outside of the covenant, to the others, the Gentiles, in fact, Israel's enemies. And Jonah is aware of this astonishing reality. The grace and compassion of God is not reserved, especially for his people. 
kept back for the select few. What God is like means the offer and the provision of salvation from judgment will go to and will encompass all those outside of and against Israel's borders. And you and I here begin to just start to glimpse the love of the Lord for the nations. The first taste of the blessings to all people. How his glory will be seen throughout all the earth. That, of course, has come to us in the gospel, hasn't it? So why is it then that Jonah bolts in the other direction? Well, it's not because he didn't understand who God is. He knew that. But because he refused to let his heart be shaped by what God is like. Jonah runs because God's grace and compassion, it's more than he can bear. The long length of his patience, the breadth of his tolerance, the depth of his understanding, and the liberal acceptance and forgiveness of a wicked people's horrific sin. Jonah knew this more than we realize. He was an ignorant, naive, an underdeveloped trainee. He wasn't a silly, naughty prophet. Don't go thinking that. So knowing this, as we look back at chapter one and his reason for his flight, it becomes apparent that Jonah didn't run from God because he didn't expect him to catch up with him. He knew that. He didn't run because he didn't, he didn't, run because he didn't think that God's reach was big enough to extend to the ends of the earth. He knew that. He didn't run because he was scared, nor because Jonah didn't think that he was adequate to take God's message. Jonah ran. He ran because he was on a sabotage mission. He wanted to impede the message of salvation reaching the city so God's grace and compassion would run out and judgment would fall. Go far enough, for long enough, in the opposite direction, and hopefully this would be the outcome. Burn up time before the buzzer. Defy, delay, drown, whatever it took. Jonah is testing and pushing God's grace and compassion. He's trying to break him, force his mighty right hand. He doesn't want God to be who he is. Not to anyone apart from him and his people, his kind. Jonah has no pleasure in the life of the wicked. Yet Jonah inadvertently displays even more greatly, actually, the breadth and the depth of who God is. He shows us how God's heart bleeds and burns for those dead in their transgressions and sins, doesn't he? The real reason for Uh, Jonah's anger was that he just knew who God was all along, full of loving kindness. That means he is concerned with all people, all humanity. Jonah wanted this bound to Israel, not boundless. And that made his blood boil. So his resolve, now, O Lord, Take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. The goodness of God displeased and depressed Jonah so much 
he'd rather die. Now, recalling his prayer in the fish of the belly back in chapter 2, Jonah acknowledges God as the source of salvation. Verse 9, it says, salvation comes from the Lord. Had he not appealed to God's heart to get him out earlier? In fact, Israel as a whole on countless occasions had experienced the compassion and grace of God, hadn't they? When punishment would have been right and just. Like the very time when that quote that he picks up is being made known to Moses, what are they doing down the mountain? Yet when this wicked city, this one, is delivered from wrath, he rather invite, in fact, ask for judgment upon himself. That's face death. Then see the salvation of Nineveh. And that's dark. That's the dark thing. Don't miss that. You see, externally, he had conformed to the word of the Lord. He obeyed. He had to. He couldn't not in the end. Maybe he grew up in it. He'd been told to. Yet internally, it seems his heart shared little of God's. And so the Lord replied, Have you a right to be angry? Really, Jonah? Really? He's got no answer, and so he walks off. If, as Israel's representative and spokesman, this is Jonah's attitude towards who God is, how reflective is it of the nations back home? That's the tragedy. It points to their heart and it suggests that Israel actually shares the same feelings towards God and others as well. That's the word to them, but it's also a word to us. Unifellowship, what's your resolve? Many of you know what God is like. You know him, don't you? Many of you obey. Many probably because you've, you've grown up doing it. Many of you, because you know that you can't escape God, that's pointless, you can't get away from him, you get that. But how do you really feel, like really, really feel about his character here? How much of Jonah's attitude do you really honestly share in? You see, we'll, share, we'll show our um, pushback against God's uh, gracious and compassionate heart at worst... By the way, we'll um, do little, if anything, to interact with those who are different to us. We'll subtly or actively um, shoo off and, and dissuade those who don't fit our social norms, our cultural preferences, our moral ideals, our personal GNP, our accepted look. Disdaining, disliking, distancing. That's us. That's you. You see, we'll keep to our own because they don't measure up or meet our standard. Preferring perhaps that they get hit with a little bit of justice from above to kind of straighten them out, that'll make you feel good. And we'll show as students the way you're pushing back at best 
because it will be whoever those are you think are normal, well, we're happy for God to care about, to reach to. We'll approach them at Citywide, saddle up next to them at Bible in the Bar, invite them to Christianity, make space for them at our fellowship groups, shout them a beer, enjoy a coffee with, maybe even consider for leadership. Because we like them, well, God can like them too, can't he? But we'll draw a line. We'll be setting a limit. There'll be a boundary that says, well, I'm happy for God to let all of you in, but the rest of you, not during my time at uni. That's dark. Don't miss that. It's the external yes to God and the inward no to who he is that actually persisted amongst God's people. Many years down the line, that was also the leaders of Israel's resolve to to shun and shut out such a character. As the call and invitation of a new day of salvation rang out across the city of Jerusalem, Israel was faced with another prophet and one with the opposite heart of Jonah, a greater one than him, his counterpart, the one who Jonah was a shadow of. When they see the person, Jesus, hear his words, get a positive feel for such a passion coming through his vision, the people, they're initially thrilled, aren't they? The Christ, the King has come. But soon they realize this is not the Christ they wanted. He's far too gracious. He's far too compassionate for their liking. As Jesus begins preaching, he declares actually just how far God's blessing is going to extend. As he goes on and he goes around, they see his heart as he reaches out and he embraces sinners, tax collectors, Jewish outcasts, half-castes, and even Gentiles, Israel's enemies. The response when faced with such a disposition, Israel, its people, its leaders are furious. They hate it. There are limits for God's love, surely. They, like Jonah, knew what he was like. Yet they didn't want a Christ overflowing to such types. They can't have that. Yet the Jewish people's anger doesn't lead them to wanting to die, but instead wanting the gracious and compassionate one to die. But rather than sabotaging the way out of judgment and way into salvation for others through killing him, they open it up and they expose it to all. You see, it was in Jesus dying on the cross where the grace and the compassion of the God of Jonah that so loved the world is most clearly and lavishly displayed. Launceston, Hobart. The cross is the moment where we see a bruised, a beaten, a broken humanity, yes, but also a cruel, a callous, and a rebellious one. Get what it doesn't deserve, being understood and sided with in a way that it never should have. Seeing that eternal day 41 cancelled, which should have been kept. Here we see the full extent of what it means 
that God is gracious and compassionate, a God who relents from sending calamity toward us, toward you. Because of who Jesus is, because of who God is in Jesus, it's totally fitting that he would do this, isn't it? It's completely in keeping with his character. So those of us who have received Jesus, or those of you who haven't actually, if we're to have our hearts shaped, have our hearts melted, we must consider Christ and him crucified. You and I need to to come back to and keep lifting our eyes up to who he is, who we are, what we had become, and how he's dealt with us. That is what causes us to delight and derive pleasure from the grace and compassion. It's the only way to keep us from and change us if our lives do resonate with the heartbeat of Jonah. If, despite seeing who God is in Jesus, we still begrudge so much. That's dark. Don't miss that. God's right response. My second point. It's a little bit shorter than the first one. Chapter 4, verses 5 to 11. Jonah's wrong response gives way to God's right response. Jonah's uh, now, have you seen where he is? He's outside, he's camped up a hill, wanting to see what will happen on day 41, or day 40, depending on how you want to track the time, watching to see maybe will their repentance fade, if God might have a change of heart, if God will put on a spectacular show like Sodom and Gomorrah, where he's secured his front row seats, hasn't he? Nothing would kind of make him feel better should fire and brimstone fall. I wonder if you've got anybody like that. Then the Lord God provided a shady vine, and Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which destroyed the vine. Then God brought unbearable heat, so Jonah wanted to die, and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. It's good to laugh because that shows how dumb it is. <laughs> well, we just saw his anger, his resolve, his reason, his resolve. Now, let's quickly look at his happiness, his anger, and God's question. Have a look at Jonah's face in verse 6. He's smiling for the first time in the whole story. See his happiness? This height of his delight matches the depth of um, the depths of his discontentment in four one. Jonah loves this plant that God has provided for him, but as quickly as the plant comes, it's gone. Now look at Jonah's face, see his anger, and let's see God's answer as he explains his anger. God asks Jonah for a second time if he has a right to be angry. The first time, Jonah said nothing. Now he explodes back. Yes, actually, I've got a right to be angry. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, 
It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God says, you're on about a plant. You've got so much pity and so much pain, so much concern over a plant that sprung up overnight and was gone just as quickly. You treasured it. But Jonah, Nineveh is filled with people. People just like you. In fact, 120,000 of them. That they don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know how to live. They're lost. They're without hope and without me in the world. Jonah, how can you look on such a massive destruction of life, of sinful people? Yeah, but people just like you, with that kind of emotion. Jonah's concern and God's concern, they're totally at odds, aren't they? People's lives matter to God. A plant matters to Jonah. A plant. Jonah's horizons are filled with the small and the short lived. He's captured by the cute and the comfortable. His cares, in comparison, lead us to either laugh or cry, right? It's kind of hard to know which one. Maybe that's why the cows are there, break the tension a bit. Surely he would at least be a little bit worried about the animals. Any interest in even a cow, Jonah? Come on. Nope. That's the type and extent of cares you end up having when your heart doesn't seem to be being shaped by the one full of grace and compassion. So how does Jonah end? What's Jonah's response to the answer? Well, everybody look at your Bibles. What does the next verse say? Someone shout, read it out. There is no next verse. Did I get you? That's it. It's the end. It ends leaving us hanging. And it ends with a question. Because the book is a question for religious people like Jonah. It's a shout out to Israel. It's a question for you. What do you care about the most? Unifellowship, I want to ask you that. Do you care more for perishing people than you do for your plants? Are you more upset when your comfort is disturbed and disruptive, disrupted, whether in your, your, your role and responsibilities at church, on campus, around the home, wherever it may be, fixated on securing and tailoring our own space, our own ease of pace and freedom to keep options open? Are we more heartbroken when we're uh, not as popular or as respected as we want to be? Disheartened at your likes count, your empty comments on um, Insta, put out when you're not acknowledged the way that you want to, you should be. Belonging, have belonging and having influence consumed our moments. 
be more distressed just when things are not done properly and in the appropriate manner as they've always been done around here at uni fellowship in that church group in that church group you run setting that right putting people in their place and defending the status quo feels your thoughts floods our feelings and becomes of utmost importance to us whatever it may be whether it's just stuff you just simply like more things lots of quality things in regular quantities and that goes for grades and credit averages as well these these are your great concerns that shrink and squeeze out the main things, the main thing. And these aren't actually that far off the kind of consuming concerns that Jesus encountered among his own. The kind that actually created such a clash of outlooks that led even to his death. Israel hated them being named You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You give God a tenth, but you neglect justice and love. You love the most important seats in the synagogue and greeting places in the marketplace. And as this right response arrives in Jesus through the healings and exorcisms he performed, the kind of people he had meals with and houses he visited, through the way his teaching unpacked the correct intent of the law, through his preaching that um, pictured what the kingdom is like. He was showing Israel, us as well, what our God's priorities are and what his perspective is. Like the plant, these were his object lesson and conversation to them, yeah? Unsurprisingly, we find Israel's leaders answering back to trap him and defend themselves against him. I wonder, is there a justification that you fire off to God? You see, Jesus had come in the first place from heaven to earth because his outlook was bigger. His greatest concern was his world, was us. He saw what mattered most, and that completely filled his horizons. That set in right place and proportion everything else, didn't it? His coming, dying, rising, and final command shows the extent of Christ's concern. It's no longer a city, not even Jerusalem. These give way to what is bigger, what is beyond Nineveh. It's the world, the ends of the earth. And isn't that why he hasn't returned yet? Uni Fellowship, he's waiting, he's holding back, he's staying his calamity because he is merciful, a gracious and compassionate God, not wanting anyone to perish, but all people of all kinds and all types to be saved, to have them sit next to you in your chair, stand next to you in heaven. Is that what you care about? It was said that Hudson Taylor, that famous missionary to China, could sometimes barely stand to be in a church in England where he was from and hear the sound of a thousand Englishmen sing the praises of God when there were untold numbers of Chinese in bondage. He said, would that 
God would make hell so real to us that we cannot rest. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, the tears you shed over the last year, last semester, last month, this last week, what were they about? How much grief does the fate of lost people bring to you compared to losing your plant? How can we not care? How can we not weep? Jesus is concerned for the uni with 14,000 young men and women lost, led astray, full of those who experience pain, happiness, suffering, boredom and fear, just like you, who know what it is to feel something missing, want something more, feel hopeless and quietly alone. And for whom going to hell is every bit a tragedy for them, as it would be for you. His horizons are filled with the savings of sinners. People, individuals like you and me. Not concepts, not statistics, not vague regions. Jonah's horizons filled with the insignificant. So the book ends. Will you share in who God is in Christ and join his mission? Because isn't he right to be concerned about such a great, not just city, but world? Please pray with me. Father God, we ask... Uh, that you would help us to be um, rooted and established in love, in your grace and compassionate character, so we may have power together with each other and all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God And we may see many others join with us in that for their good and your glory. Amen.